We have been looking through the Lenten season at different snapshots, different pictures of Jesus through the Gospel of Luke. We've called it Encountering Jesus. One of the premises behind this is that for us to be transformed, for us to be changed at all, we have to have a relationship with the real Jesus. Our tendency is that we like to, see, we're created in God's image, but I'm afraid a lot of us like to make God out in our image. And so we need to have a picture of the real Jesus, and the scriptures give us that. So if you have Bibles, I would invite you to turn to Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 9. I'm titling this morning's message, Engaging Reality, because it's all about the truth. And so, friends, hear the word of the Lord from Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 9. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Friends, this is the word of the Lord given by the triune God of love because he loves us. Let's pray. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Lord, your word is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It is given not to just give us information, not to just give us knowledge, but to change us, to transform us. And Lord, I pray that you would do that this morning, that you would open our hearts and our minds, that we, you would kindle a fire on our hearts, that we would leave here loving you, treasuring you, cherishing you, more than when we came in. Father, I know in speaking that I am totally, totally dependent on Holy Spirit. And I pray that you would pour out Holy Spirit to be our teacher, to be the one who convicts us, the one who comforts us, the one who challenges us, the one who leads us in the grace of Jesus. Father, we pray all these things in the matchless name of Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. Well, we all know how much we love a good story. Stories are inherently interesting. Stories entertain. Stories inform. Stories seem to involve us. In a story, the author kind of abducts us and brings us into a narrative world of his creating, a reality that he shapes. Stories allow us to see a reality the storyteller creates, and from this kind of other world, we are invited to enter in. We are invited to understand, to evaluate, and hopefully redirect 
our lives. Jesus taught by parables. And parables are some of Jesus' most famous sayings and stories. Last week we looked at, there was a man who had two sons. Or we have, there's a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Or a man sowing some seed. Parables, whether of the prodigal son, the good Samaritan, the seed and the sower, they are among the most famous words ever spoken by our Lord. Even if you know very little about Jesus, even if you're very unfamiliar with Jesus, you probably are familiar with sayings like the prodigal son, the good Samaritan, the sower and his seed. But friends, parables are much more than stories. Remember the movie Jack Nicholson was in? I think it was titled, A Few Good Men. I hope I have my information right here. And what was it, the famous line Jack Nicholson said? You can't handle the truth. Parables are much more than stories because what exactly is a parable and why are they so important? They are, in the words of New Testament scholars, extended analogies, comparisons used to explain, convince, and lead us to action concerning the kingdom of God. Scholars point out that their primary purpose is to elicit a response. This is where they're different than stories you might hear. Stories you might hear might be, well, that was good, I appreciate that. That entertained me, that informed me. Whereas a parable is meant to change us. A parable is designed to get a response from us, to move us to action, which is part of the issue with you can't handle the truth. See, we were built for the truth. Jesus himself said, you will know the truth and the truth will set us free. We need the truth, but can we handle the truth? This text tells us the truth that we need. This text teaches us the response, the call to action in this parable is a call to repentance, a call to redirect our lives. The truth we need is to redirect our lives, and the Holy Spirit tells us how to do this in three particular ways. He tells us first through giving us a realistic warning, second, a sobering reminder, and third, a patient plea. The Holy Spirit is challenging us. In many ways, this is a difficult sermon. This is about engaging reality. The Holy Spirit is giving us the truth we need through a realistic warning, a sobering reminder, and a patient plea. First, a realistic warning. I appreciated Mike praying for the victims of those who were affected by the tornadoes in Mississippi and Alabama, but doesn't it seem that when disaster of this sort or any sort strikes, when a catastrophe occurs, people inevitably ask the same questions. Whose fault is it? Who is to blame? Where was God when this happened? Why did God allow this to happen? Okay, now we need to remember, this is why I'm repeating this, part of the purpose behind parables, part of their aim, part of the intention, part of the reasoning is to alter 
our view of reality, to change our thinking, and thus consequently to redirect our lives. It's to get us to think, maybe I'm asking the wrong questions here. See, Jesus, when asked a question about suffering, what's his response? He says, maybe we should be asking different questions. We should be asking different things. We need to ask the right questions. So when a disaster hits, like a tornado, or we have a health crisis, we have a financial crisis, instead of asking who is to blame or who is at fault, we should be asking questions that more have to do with our relationship with God. What is God doing in my life? How should I respond? Maybe instead of saying who's to blame, I should say, how can I show compassion here? Or maybe when something hits, I should be asking, what does God want me to learn through this? See, look with me at the text and look with me at verse 1. Jesus is giving us the realistic warning concerning repentance in the context of two disasters. Verse 1, he says, there were some present at that very, t- at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think these Galileans are worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? And then he gives this very kind of cryptic, challenging response. No, I tell you, unless you repent, you will also likewise perish. What's going on here? The first disaster is an atrocity carried out by some Roman soldiers acting in the name of their governor, Pilate. A group of Galileans are offering animal sacrifices, presumably at the temple and probably around the Passover, since this was the time when pilgrims made their sacrifices. And in this violent act, the blood of the victims is mixed with the blood of the sacrifice, obviously making it a sacrilege. One commentator put it this way when he said, it would be as if terrorists came into a church, shot the worshipers as they are partaking of communion, then mingled their blood with the communion wine. So this is an atrocity. Make no mistake about it. But now, look at the question posed by those reporting this to Jesus. Look at what they ask and how Jesus responds. They say, hmm, Jesus, what do you think? Are these Galileans, they're pretty bad, aren't they? Are they worse than just your mere ordinary Galileans. See, in the ancient world, much as it is today, what are they seeking to find? Whose fault is it? Who's worse? There's got to be some superior, some inferior, some good, some bad. It's presumed that catastrophe or disaster is due to the sin of the victim. Isn't that always the way it is? If something bad happens, we want to know whose fault it is. It's almost we have an inherent need to assign blame. You know why we're doing that? because we have an inherent need to self-justify. The Galileans, in asking this question, are basically saying, see, aren't we a little better than them? Aren't we just a... They must be worse than us. Overlook our sin, because we're not doing this. They're hard-boiled sinners. We're just kind of -of run-of-the-mill sinners. They really need grace. We need a little bit of grace. So Jesus answers their question by saying, uh, wrong question, wrong focus. 
They ask, is this tragedy proof that there were sinners? And Jesus says, um, time out. Unless you repent, you also will likewise perish. In other words, there is something much more important for you to be thinking about here. You need to be thinking about your sin. You need to be engaging reality and the reality about your relationship with God. You need to handle the truth. You're worried about who is a worse sinner, and Jesus says, you're all sinners. We're all in the same boat. There's no better. There's no worse. We are all deserving punishment and the judgment of God. And Jesus goes on and he reinforces this, doesn't he? Because now he gives a second example, a second disaster. The tragic accident of 18 being killed by the tower at Siloam. And so Jesus turns the tables on them. He says, were those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? And again he says, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you also will likewise perish. The accident must have been common knowledge because here's Jesus bringing it up. And look this time where Jesus corrects them. He challenges their assumption that some are morally superior. Because when Jesus asks, do you think they were more guilty, he now uses the words offenders and not sinners. Offenders meaning debtors, asking, do you think they somehow owed more to God? Were somehow further away from God than others living in Jerusalem? Now notice what Jesus is saying. First, by calling them offenders, he does not deny that they are sinners. But again, what is he saying? Here's his realistic warning. He says, look, we are all sinners. We are all, like Mike put it during our confession time, we are all a mixed bag. We are all human, all flesh and blood, all in need of grace, all without the intervention and the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ under the sentence of judgment. Not often I quote Jack Nicholson twice in a sermon, but can you handle the truth? This is the first element of truth. Can you handle the fact that you are a sinner in the sight of God, justly deserving as our PCA, I'm quoting the PCA Book of Church Order now. What is this for a strange sermon? Justly deserving his displeasure and without hope, save in his sovereign mercy. Friends, I do plead with you. Ask yourself that question. Don't ask yourself the question, whose fault is it? Who's to blame? That is a question designed to avoid the truth. Those are the wrong questions. Next, Jesus gives a sobering reminder. Look with me at verse 6. And he says, he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it, and he found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down! Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. 
Look at what's going on here. Here's a man, had a fig tree, planted in his vineyard, and he came back to see if it was bearing fruit. In other words, was the fig tree doing what it was designed to do? And the answer to that is simple. Fig tree, supposed to have figs. I show up, no figs. It's kind of like Jesus created us to be human. Do you know what it means to be a sinner? We think sin is always just kind of breaking the rules somehow. Sin dehumanizes us. We were created to be human. Let's see if we find humanity. Quite often, no. Now we need to understand some of the background here, what's going on. Okay, apparently here's this fig tree, hadn't for three years. The man had enough, was ready to cut it down. In other words, judgment. We need to understand some of the Old Testament background here because God often in the Old Testament used the figure, used the imagery of the vine or the fig tree to refer to his people Israel. So for example, in Isaiah 5 we read, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he came and he looked for justice, but behold, found bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Israel was called to be a fruitful tree in God's vineyard. This whole missional purpose of the church is not a new thing. It is built on the foundation of Israel, the people of God of the Old Testament. Israel was called to be a light to the nations. Israel was called to display true, proper, biblical justice, biblical relationships, biblical righteousness. They had all the privileges, all the spiritual advantages to bear this fruit. They had the Word of God. They had the law. They had the patriarchs. They had the tabernacle. They had the covenant with God. They had prophets, priests, temple, sacrifices, atonement. And so while this is a parable to Israel in its original context, here comes the sobering reminder. We ought not miss its relevance to us and applications to us. God created us to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Look at what he's given us. He's given us his word. He's given us the gospel. We have his complete revelation, both Old and New Testament. We have the Holy Spirit to empower us and indwell us. We're connected to Christ, the true vine. So let me ask you this question. Are you bearing fruit in your life? Are you growing in Christ-like character? in service to God, in ministry to and helpfulness to others, in influence among your neighbors and friends who are seeking Christ. Remember Martin Luther's first thesis of the 95 theses was when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he called for the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. We think of repentance as something we do at the very beginning of the Christian life. Or maybe if we're in our Christian life, we blow it big time and get caught. But repentance, a true turning to God in view of his mercy and kindness and grace ought to characterize our daily lives. Repentance ought to be so normal and so joyful because we are constantly flying to the mercy seat to receive the kindness of our Savior. But see, if I stop the sermon now, that's bad.
because one thing is missing. Look with me at this patient plea. See, at this point in the parable, the verdict is rendered, isn't it? The owner says, there it is, fig tree. Are there figs? No, I've given it three years. Cut it down. Verdict is there. Can you handle the truth? Judgment. Until verse 8. And what do you have in verse 8? You have someone step in to intercede. Because here comes the gardener saying, Sir, let it alone this year. Do you catch the intercession? He's pleading. Here's the patient plea. Sir, let it alone this year until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. If not, you can cut it down. The gardener does something amazing. He intercedes for the fig tree. Like Abraham interceding for the city of Sodom. If only you would find five righteous people in the city. Won't you have mercy on it? The gardener intercedes on behalf of the fig tree. If only you would let me tend it one more year. Take care of it. Pay special attention to it. Then in a year, if it still bears no fruit, cut it down. Again, in its original set setting, we're, he's pleading here for God's patience with Israel. We know from later history what happened. Many did not repent, and in A.D. 70, judgment came. The temple was besieged. Jerusalem was destroyed. Israel was scattered. But friends, here's a very, very important point. We need to see that we're no better. We need to see God will not wait forever. He's giving His word in order to lead us to turn to Him. J.C. Ryle said of this particular parable, he says, we live in a land of Bibles, liberty, gospel preaching. Where is the fruit? Where is the evidence? This parable is particularly humbling and heart-searching. See, judgment has not yet come. Why? Because God is kind. God is patient. God is giving us opportunity if you have never turned to Jesus Christ, if you've never turned to God and said to God, Father, I'm a sinner. Accept me simply because Jesus, because Jesus was cut down in my place. Jesus became like the fig tree who was cut down to be raised. We talk about moving into Holy Week and the death and resurrection of Christ where he is moved to be raised to be the ultimate tree that we can abide in him and live forever. God has given you time to turn to him. Won't we make today the day that we confess our sins to God, where we seek his forgiveness, where we own up to our independence, our rebellion, our control, and say to God, God, please accept me because of Jesus. Bring me in because Jesus was cut down. Jesus and my Christian friends, how incredible is it that for you, Judgment Day has already occurred? Jesus took your judgment. Are we living that free? Are we living that confidently? Are we living that joyfully? Or are we still living like we have to justify ourselves? We have to prove ourselves like judgment still awaits. No, Jesus was judged for us. We're not under judgment today because of the mercy of God in Christ. God is patient. 
God is merciful. Oh, won't we live for Him? Won't we give up the deceit of pleasures, of comfort, of self-satisfaction, of self-gratification, and treasure the One who truly lives to intercede for you, who truly treasures you? Let's pray.